Well, whether uh, you are in the season, have been in the season of raising kids, or whether you're growing up right now, or whether you're somewhere in between, we've all been, in some sense, a part of family life. And I don't know what yours was like, but as, I was, as we were raising kids, uh, my kids I always consider to be quite colorful. And what I mean by that is they're their own people. They kind of did things, and that was always a challenge. You know, I, I don't like people to cross me, especially in my own home. And so as they were getting older, challenges grew in terms of how you give consequence or discipline or what you do in that. I was having a conflict with one of my boys at the dinner table, and we had actually had some advice from a counselor that, you know, it's good just to give them something to do as a consequence, even, you know, because you end up doing the same things. He said, so he offered a suggestion, like if it's wintertime, just have them go outside and move some snow. Like do that for 10 minutes. That's a consequence. You don't have to deal with everything. So here I am, these moments that I've regularly had and usually failed at, we're in conflict. I'm like, okay, son, we're going to go outside and you're going to move some snow. I'm going to show you where it is and where you're going to move it. So I open the garage door. We go outside. He gets the shovel. I take him to the yard and show him the area I want him to move the snow. I go inside thinking, you know what? I won that conflict. Well done, Padre. I'm sitting down for a while. I actually, he'd come back in, told me he seemed to be in a good attitude. Things seemed to be fine. Uh, I then was going to leave, so I um, got, went back to the garage, opened the garage door to go out to the garage, and my entire car was covered with snow in my garage. You're feeling my pain, aren't you? I'm not even going to tell you what went on from there, but I want to just point out, <laughs> it wasn't a bad moment. I did all right with it, but have you ever felt like when we get into difficulty and differences, it elevates and escalates? And I was thinking about that even with our time. Now, that's a situation where supposedly I have authority. This should be easy, and it wasn't. Think of our relationships even in our own homes, in our own families, in our friendships, in our church. And we've been under so much pressure, I think, in the last year. It's intensified this. I, I wonder how many young families have been home a lot more and their kids home too, and they're working and raising kids at the same time. Do you know what those conversations look like in spouses? You know, why aren't you watching the kids more? Why didn't you get this ready? Why, didn't you, why are you overburdening me and asking me for this? And why is that going on? Or just take it into homes where you have, have you ever had it where you have an organized person and what I like to call a spontaneous person? It's code for disorganized. Have you noticed that organized people are quite frustrated with people that are not organized? And people that are not organized look at organized people like they're just really control freaks. And so it's just not a pretty picture, is it? The conflicts elevate. Think of our teenagers in these years, and particularly in this time, how many of them have had to be home, and they're studying, or they have been studying, with an online teacher, and then they're left, like in college, to do their own work. Were you ready to do your own work at 14 or 15? I'm not ready at 56 sometimes. I mean, you can see how things have elevated and escalated, and then we increase and look at how many things we're having difficulty and conflict over outside of our own families, everything from the way pandemics are handled to the way politics are handled to the way that we operate and move and go back and forth in life. We are at each other's throats. True? It's true. And so we, we thought, boy, going into this season, we want to just discover... What this means, Jesus said these words really simply to his disciples, people are going to know you by our love. We're going to love people differently. You know, in our mission statement, we say as a church, our vision, our mission is to be radically loving and growing together in Christ. Now, we love to talk about the radical love of Jesus. He gives us his radical love. And then we say we live the same way. You get where I'm going with this, right? 
I think other people need to radically love me more. I'm not sure I need to work at it. And in fact, even as we go into this series, as we look very particularly at a passage, kind of in detail, you're going to be very tempted to realize how other people around you need what we're going to talk about. And I'm simply asking you not to consider anything other than what God wants to say to you. And make no mistake, uh, if God changes you, it changes your environment, in case you don't know that. I, I have this happen regularly when I meet with people in conflict, other than when it's me, because then I do the same thing. But almost always, when I have two people in a conflict, they say this, the person with me is so unreasonable, and they're never going to change, so I'm not going to change. And we wait for the other person to make some movement. And God always invites us to go first. Now, this doesn't just have to be about conflict, but I know in the world we're living in, the idea of love is really becoming more difficult. I find it ironic that the people who claim to be most loving are the most unloving who people don't love the way they love. That's a weird thing, isn't it? Now you have to accept everything, and if you don't accept everything, we don't want to accept you, but we're loving. That's confusing. It's a very confusing time and word. And so what we want to do is engage kind of in a unique letter that Paul writes to a church. It's a church in Corinth. Now, I want to start with that and kind of looking at Corinth. This is actually a map of what the city would have been like around this time. What you need to know about this city and what Paul had gone through is Paul had spent a year and a half here. Now, Corinth is a very significant economic center. It's kind of a crossroads in the Roman world. It has significant influence, significant people there. And so Paul went for a year and a half and began to share who Jesus is and watched this church grow, this unique, wonderful church grow and how they loved and took care of each other. Now, yet a ways out of that, he's been there for a year and a half, but he gets reports back, it's not going so well. And so in this letter, and I'm just going to give you a quick overview, what Paul has to address, we're going to dial into one particular area. But as he deals and writes this letter, he's first addressing one of the things he's heard, which is that different people are following different leaders in Christ, and whichever one you're following, you think you're the better than group. Kind of like if it would be in today as if we said, well, we go to all shores, we're better than other churches. Or another church that they, people went to, they go, we go to this church, we're better than those. And people start to look to their individual leader to somehow elevate them, which is not loving, is it? Now, when Paul addresses this part, and I'm just trying to give you to, to get an idea, everything he'll address in the letter, he will go back to the centrality of Jesus. This is all about who Jesus is. This is always about who Jesus is. And they've lost sight. Because what they're saying is, yeah, Jesus is who we follow, but I like Paul better. No, Jesus is who we follow, but I like Apollo better. So what Paul writes is, hey, listen, we're all in him. It's Jesus. Stop aligning with leaders and separating over each other with this. By the way, though we're not dealing with this today, realize this is a message for us. Think of how many things we align with that are not Jesus and say to other people, I will not be part of a relationship with you because this is where I align. And what Jesus is saying is the church is all, or what Paul is saying is the church is all this. The next thing he addresses is that they've kind of lived in this place of freedom, and that's translated to how they operate sexually and their sexualized lifestyles, I would say. And you have to understand in the ancient world, particularly in Roman culture, Sex was both recreational and even had some godlike understanding. They had gods over sexuality. So it was highly sought. I would say they, they saw it as part of their life and identity. And they're operating in all sorts of different ways outside of God's design. And Paul very simply says to them, hey, let's go back to Jesus. 
He actually bodily lived, died, and rose again. He brings life to physicality. You have to consider that in how he lives and what he calls us to. And that's how he begins to address this, always moving back to who Jesus is. The next issue he addresses is food and pagan sacrifices. Now, you won't see it in detail here, but for example, this is a temple, and this is a temple, and there are other temples in Corinth as well. There are multiple gods that every Roman culture has, and you kind of have your own. You can even have multiple ones, and you primarily go to each god or each temple for something you need. One of the practices are that they actually offer their food to these gods, to these idols, and that before they eat it. So now the church is growing up and people are becoming concerned. You're eating food offered to idols. This is going to take you out. You can't do this. Well, Paul writes back and says, listen, we're not beholden to anything. You don't have to worry and fear that. Not meaning they've offered the food, but others have. And he's saying, listen, you don't need to carry that. We're free in Christ. But... When you're with someone that struggles with that, I want you to be loving them as they are. So guess what? Make a sacrifice and don't eat those things if it helps them. I mean, you can hear the posture. is just, will you look out for others? Will you not just look out for yourself? And then it takes us to where we're going to go today and what matters. Now they're also, he's getting reports, they're having conflict when they're together. And they're having all these really wild supernatural things happen. People are getting prophetic words. They're singing in tongues. God's revealing all sorts of things when they're together. But they become quite divided over it and how it happens and what goes on. And so Paul is now trying to address this. And that's where we're going to take it up. And I want to show you where it begins. And then we'll actually look at the text we're going to be studying. But he begins trying to kind of get them off the page of thinking they're right because of what's happening. And he says this, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I mean, he's telling them, if you do all this, you miss the point of love. By the way, just a side note, have any of you ever owned a gong? Show of hands, anybody own a gong or online? Have at least one person that had, that's good. I just wanted to tell you this, this has nothing to do with the message, but it's very weird. So that's what I'm telling you. When I was in college, a friend of mine had a whole set of gongs. We played in a band together. So I bought a 22-inch gong. I don't know if you've ever owned a gong. I bought one. I thought it would be a good idea. Put it in my doorway in my college house. And every time I left the house, I sang, Any way the wind blows. Completely useless. Doesn't really mean anything for today. But I just wanted you to know that I owned a gong. I kind of miss my 22-inch gong now. So if any of you has one and want to get rid of it, I'd take it. Just like what I'm talking about, it's waste of time and it doesn't mean anything. And that's, <laughs> that's literally what he's saying here. You can have this amazing experience of speaking in tongues. And by the way, tongues here means there is a tongue you don't understand where God's giving you a tongue and other, it makes sense to others, or an angelic tongue, which is a unique tongue that God gives that is only understood angelically that can be very meaningful, but he's saying it's causing division. You are not realizing how it's affecting other people and you don't care You need to love people. And then he says it again with other things going on. If you have the gift of prophecy, if you can fathom the mysteries of all knowledge, and if you have faith that can move mountains but you don't have love, man, I'm nothing. I hope you're getting the message here. All these great things can happen. And and just apply it to today, we tend to think as long as I'm right, that's all that matters. What if you started to think about the things you struggle with different people and you said, listen, you can be right, but if you don't have love, it doesn't matter. It's really challenging and convicting. He gives one more 
Hey, if I give all I possess to the poor, and I'm given over, even give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. I can even do the right things and it be for the wrong reasons because I don't know how or am not being loving. It's kind of like we lose sight of the whole point of the Christian life. And in case you don't know, love is always at the center. Greatest commandments, love God, love your neighbor. We write, when Paul writes to the church, he says, our goal of our instruction is always love. He prays that your love may abound more and more. Love is always the aim. So it will cause us, as we look into this passage, to ask, what does this mean? And that's what we're going to do in these four weeks. This week, we're going to look at kind of the do's of love, the things Paul tells us we should do. Next week, we'll look at the don'ts, because they continue from here. The week after that, we're going to look at what we rejoice in and what we don't. And the final week, there's some always and nevers that we're going to look at. Now, here's what I want you to understand. It is a passage many of you will know, and even if you haven't been around church, if you've been to enough weddings that are at churches, this passage has been read. In fact, it's always read as a beautiful poem. This, this is what it should look like, which is not bad, it's true, but do you realize this poem, this was not written as a wonderful statement to marriage. It was written as a scathing indictment on the lack of how we were being in the church. It's written to shake us and challenge us, not to go, oh, that's nice. So are you ready to be shaken and challenged a bit? No, <laughs> I like that. That's honest, I appreciate that. Well, I tell you what, then just kind of like people, don't even worry about love, whatever you get. No, I'm kidding. So here's where it begins. Love is patient, love is kind. That's where it begins. Paul says these words, they sound kind of interesting and wonderful and somewhat, okay, I can be patient, kind, I can be loving, but what I want to do is let's, we're going to drill into these and we're going to just start with love because quite honestly, we have a, a broad understanding of what we think love is. You know, we, we love French fries and we love lobster. We love our teams. We like the people we're around. What does God even mean by this? What is Paul trying to tell us? And where we always go is what does Jesus show us about this, which by the way, if you want to take time and go through this passage in the weeks ahead, just insert the name Jesus instead of love. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. So we're going to look at some references to how Jesus lived and what this meant. And here is our first one. Man, did that move all by itself? I didn't even touch it. Did someone else do that? You guys are messing with me. Who came up here? So this is where Jesus, kind of we get a picture of it. Jesus says, and it tells us from John, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The picture of this, and this is the picture of agape, which is the word for love, is it's a love that is other-centered. It's not a love focused on what I get out of it but what I give to it. It's a love that's focused on what do they need. It's a love focused on how do they best receive love best to be given love, best to be looked out for in their best interests. Now, I am a strategic person, and most of my life I have found ways to maximize the love output and minimize the impact on me, which is not loving. It's a way to appear loving. The heart of Jesus was not, hey, I'm loving you so that I get somewhere. It's, I love you and I'm so focused on you. When it says God loved the world, he gave his son, it means Jesus came in the flesh because he cherishes you, and he would give up of himself. It is a self-sacrificial, others-focused love. By the way, that's radical love, in case you don't know. 
Jesus goes on even to explain it a little further, just farther into John's account. He says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down their life for one's friends. So when Paul says love is, that's the kind of love he's talking about. Now that's a beautiful picture. We say radically loving. Is that not radical love? I mean, come on. Self-sacrificial love, love that loves you and reaches out to help you when you are rebellious and decimating life, that's the kind of love this is. And I think when we read things like this, we should both be inspired because love is much greater than we realize and it's much bigger than we can do on our own. Please say amen to that. Because I'm telling you, if you can do this on your own, man, come on up. Everything in me fights a different way of life. That's where he begins. Love is self-sacrificial. It's others-focused. It's not looking out for yourself, but for them. And now we'll go back to what he has to say. Love is patient. Uh, just uh, curious here and then online too. Show of hands, how many of you are not patient? Good. How many of you are not patient but don't know it? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Patience is hard, isn't it, in this world? I mean, it's very difficult. We live in an interaction, a constant response. We're also in a place where our stress and pressure has increased. Do you notice that when you're under pressure, your patience factor goes down? And when you hear the word patience, you probably, like me, think of things that just take too long. You know, when I first read this, all I could think of was, oddly enough, was ketchup. Because when I was growing up, they always had these ads about, they had anticipation. They would literally, there was an ad where they put a ketchup bottle on the top of a building and turn it, and the guy walks down all these flights, and then he holds a hot dog out, and it pops down right when he gets there. Because it takes that long for ketchup to come. Who got frustrated? Who even remembers ketchup like that? That was frustrating. You know, now they have squirt bottles. You literally just go, doesn't even matter anymore. It just pops right out. It's crazy. But when we think of patience, I think what we think of, or at least I do, is just kind of enduring and waiting for a little bit for something to happen. Yeah, patience means you kind of just have to take longer. It's waiting at the bridge that never comes down. It's waiting in line and getting by somebody in the you know, checkout thing that has 80 things and can't figure out what to do or the clerk had trouble. Or Can you think of all the things that just annoy you during a day? You're already annoyed, aren't you? Like, hurry up. Keep going, buddy. Taking too long. This word patient, there's two in the Greek language. One means to wait for things or to be patient with things, meaning they'll come. The other, though, is a different word, and it's about patience with people. And that's what this one is. It's really translated much more like long-suffering. And what it means, very simply, is when you're long-suffering, you allow the things that are difficult in front of you from that person not to get them back, but to wait out of love and care and not, not bring judgment. Long-suffering. There's a beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament. Many of them, God describes himself this way, but in this one in particular, Moses has been the agent to get God's people out of Egypt. They've, the waters have parted, and every step along the way, they complain. Now we get to this place when Moses is up on the mountain with God. He's getting the Ten Commandments, and the people are, guess what, impatient with God. He's taking too long. So they convince the priests to basically build a golden calf. They burn all their gold, melt it, and basically build this calf. Moses comes down. He's torqued. God is definitely crushed over all this. And I love Aaron's response. You talk about, uh, I mean, this is like a kid in school getting caught. Hey, you know, they put the gold in there, and it just made the shape of a, of a calf by itself. 
Like, isn't that not the dumbest answer you've ever heard in your life? We burned the gold, it refined itself in the shape of a calf. That is just weird. Like, what person even thinks that way? But he did. So now we're at this place where God has, understandably, would God not be denied and defied in this? Would that not be fair for him to be angry and bring judgment? Now, after quite an interaction with Moses, it says this, God reveals who he is, and this is how he describes himself after all this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is patience, by the way. This is long-suffering. What it simply means is God is enduring, patiently enduring the hurt that the people have caused. When he says love is patient, he's saying what you're doing is you are to patiently endure hurt. Does that sound challenging? Boy, it does to me. And make no mistake, which is something we all should realize, usually the things that upset us, we do as well. You know that, don't you? No, not me. I don't do that. I'm not like that at all. That's why Jesus says things like, hey, take the log out of your eye before you go for the speck. Now, it doesn't mean you have the same view as the other person, but let's just take different views on life. It's not about the view. It's the fact that you're really hostile about it. You're usually mad that they're hostile, and then you're hostile as well. So the invitation to be loving is, guess what? You need to patiently endure the hurt. Man, that sounds radical to me. And it sounds radical in day-to-day life, not just radical in big things, but in little things. Because here's what happened with little things. They're like a drip. One day doesn't bother you, but once you've set it and it keeps happening, man, it just slowly erodes away. My poor wife still wonders why I can walk past things and not see them. I literally could step over something and it was broken and she'd be like, did you see that? No, I did not see that at all. Can you imagine watching me walk over everything, what that must drip like all the time? Now, that's not a heavy thing, but over time, what does that do? Love is patient. It endures hurt patiently. Let me give you a picture of this. I don't know if you know where this tree is from. This is actually outside of, the, of one of the uh, federal buildings in Oklahoma City. It's actually outside what's now rebuilt, but the federal building that was bombed some years ago, blown up. What happened at that bombing was it blew a whole city block, blew a bunch of things out, and this, there was a tree right near it that was pretty well devastated too. But in the course of time, that tree somehow stayed alive and it began to grow again and blossom. This is that tree. It's actually been called the survivor tree and people go regularly and get their picture taken of, under it. It's an image for people of enduring great pain and hardship and somehow bringing life out of it. That's what happens when we love with patience. In case you don't know, that's what Jesus does for us, by the way. I mean, I know the older I get, the more I realize, man, he's got to wait a lot for me. And he's inviting us to live the very same way. Love, love that looks out for others is patiently enduring hurt. That's different than keeping it stockpiled so you can remember it and bring it back later. It's actually living in it. He goes on. Love is kind. (laughs) Man, kind is a word we hear a lot today too, isn't it? 
It's this word, you know, be kind, which I think is a great sentiment. This, this word kind, it's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. And, and before I even tell you what it means, I think I, I want to remind you, you, you know, I've lived in West Michigan now most of my adult life, and I, I grew up somewhere else, but you know that West Michigan is kind, don't you? But you know it's West Michigan kind. Do you know what West Michigan kind is? That's where you say nice things to each other, but then you go somewhere else and say different things. It's fake kind. Oh, yeah, you're great. Oh, man, they're horrible. Oh, yeah, of course, I, I care about you. Can, do you. can you believe what they did? Oh, we, we, we fake kind and give a veneer of kind here. I'm always envious of people out east, not, not for everything, but for this particular thing. If you ever go out east, do you know that they never hide anything? I mean, they tell you exactly what they think. I had a friend who lived in Philadelphia. He said, we, just, we call our own city Negadelphia because we're so negative about everything. You know exactly what thing. It's almost like they live online all the time because they don't even wait for social media. They just tell each other what they think everywhere they go. But here, we pretend kind. And what we want to find out is what is true kindness? What is it biblically? What does Paul mean? So this word kind isn't just mean kind as we would think about it today. It actually means merciful. It actually simply means to give what isn't even deserved. In fact, you'd say it this way. It's kind of a generous extension of mercy. So if patience is withholding judgment and withholding retribution, kindness is extending mercy and bringing good to those around you. That's powerful, isn't it? Love is kind. Love genuinely and generously extends mercy. Paul writes about this in other places. He's so, it's so significant to him. He says this in Romans chapter 2. And he's speaking about us and how we get off track. He said, listen, when you, a mere human being, <laughs> I always love that, you're just a person. Would you settle down? Pass judgment on them and yet do the same things. Do you think you escape God's judgment? And then he's trying to explain, don't you see God the way he is? Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, and not realize that it's God's very kindness that's intended to lead you to repentance? The way God leads us to him is in extending in generous mercy in the midst of our failings and struggles. Not going, get it right and then you'll get something but going, I love you in this mess. I'm still going to extend mercy to you. I'm still going to extend grace to you. I'm still going to extend some kindness to you. By the way, when we hear these stories over the next month from people in our church that have come to faith, you're going to hear that, but you ought to be asking it in your own life. God extends mercy to you. Do you, do you know what we tend to do in our, in our humanity? We tend to see the things that are good in our lives and go, well, I earned that. I deserve that. Of course, I did that. I'm doing well. No, no. That's God extending generously mercy to you. What do you think it would look like if you and I began to treat others this way? I'm hoping you're getting the disconnect between how we collectively live and what God's calling us to. Because like Paul, I want to hear this. It was interesting. I, I was kind of finishing up things last night, and I decided to... Um, do a little trolling on different media things. And I realized my temperature went up when I saw things I didn't like. And immediately I went back to love is patient and love is kind. 
And it wasn't even so much that it happened in the moment. What it was was I realized how quickly I'd get to the moment. It's almost like a knee-jerk reaction. Man, I go to unkindness and frustration like that. I go to judgment like that. And I don't think I'm alone. Love is patient. Love is kind. I love, I mean, I love that we say our call is to be radically loving. That we increasingly learn to understand the loving patience of Jesus and the loving kindness of Jesus, but we also are called to then walk in it. And it's really not complicated. It's just really hard to do. We're going to be people that patiently endure hurt and people that generously extend mercy. You want to be patient and kind? This is what it looks like. We patiently endure hurt and we generously extend mercy. Now, I'd love to just leave it there, but if you're like me, I would hope if I asked you, does that sound easy or hard, you'd be with me going, I don't think I can do this. I mean, does anyone, I hope you're agreeing with me. I'm as disciplined as some of you are. I can't naturally become patient and kind. So to kind of give us this final thought today, I want to take you back to this tree, this wonderful survivor tree. Something interesting that happened after all this began to grow and all the kind of the, in, the sentimentality and also I think the inspiration that comes from seeing a, seeing a tree that's endured so much come back to life. The, some of the botanists and the, the chemists involved, basically they, they cloned the DNA of this tree and they began to plant other trees like it. They built a whole system around this and they placed them somewhere in strategic places. People have bought these kind of clones and begun to take them places to be reminded in their day-to-day life of how something can live and survive and bring new life. Now I tell you that because if I leave you to just go and do this, you can't. But this is, you realize, the very life of our Lord. That he actually lives for us in such a way to patiently endure hurt, to unbelievably and generously extend mercy. And then he plants the DNA of who he is in us through his spirit says, oh, you can't do this on your own. But guess what? My spirit can give you life to live a new way. And, and I'll give you a really simple way this has to work. At least it does for me, and I don't think I'm unique. You are going to have those moments where it just pops up right away. Oh, oh, I'm mad. Oh, I'm justified. And what you pray is, Holy Spirit, fill me and help me. I can't do this on my own. And that will become an increasing understanding and an increasing dependence. Love is patient and love is kind. Oh, love, love that looks at the other and sacrifices for the other. That kind of love is patient. It patiently endures hurt. That kind of love is kind. It generously extends mercy. God says, you're my people. Do the same with the DNA of my spirit in you. Let's pray. Lord, I I don't know any of the individual situations. I don't know all that's going on, but you do. And I'm, I'm praying just a wave of your Spirit's presence and power over us. God, I pray you'd softened hearts that have become hard. I pray in those places of fighting to be right, we would begin to soften. God, I pray for each one they would begin to hold back and not have to get retribution, but instead patiently, patiently, Lord, endure hurt. 
in the same way to each other, God, we will generously extend mercy. So would you help us to be people that are actually radically loving by the power of your spirit? Change our relationships, change our church, change the way we treat each other in the community. I pray this in your name, amen.